0: Are any children ages, I believe, kindergarten through second grade? Um, I think we have some special lessons for you. Just follow up to the right side of the piano. That's just kindergarten through second grade, not kindergarten through age 45. <laughs> Don't you love it how like kids run to these lessons? I mean, they're so excited for it, or maybe they're excited that they know once this lesson is over, they get to play. Maybe you're excited because you know once this lesson is over, you get to play. And it's, it's true, I mean, what, a, what an exciting weather we have. I mean, it's a time for going to the beach, you know, for going to the pool, for playing ball, cooking out. I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about once this is over, I get to play. You know, that's just natural. But I'm also, I'm also excited about what we have to talk about today. And it's, uh, it's sort of an odd thing to be excited about. Uh, as, as has been alluded to uh, this morning, we're, we're talking about suffering today. But we should be excited about this passage, for it is from the Word of God, and for it is ultimately the victory in Christ. So I'm excited about what we're going to look at today. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1161. Now remember, we talked about last week, if you're not using a pew Bible, and you find yourself saying Galatians, and you're wondering, where is Philippians? My second grade Sunday school teacher taught me, George eats pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you're a George, jump over eat, and get pork, and you'll be all right. I'm going to say this every time. Why? Because it sticks in my head like a splinter I can't get out, and I get a little bit of joy making it stick in your head as well. (laughs) Sorry about that. If you're just joining us, we've been working through Philippians now for the second week. Uh, you just come on the very beginning of a uh, series, and it's exciting. Philippians is a very unique epistle. As you recall from last week, we talked about how the Philippian church gets it. You know, the issue for Paul with the church at Philippi isn't the basics of the gospel. It's the advance of the gospel. It's the working out the gospel in our lives and the lives of the church. It's what's called discipleship. It's what's called sanctification. Now, basically, sanctification is that aspect of our Christian reality of becoming what we already are. You see, when someone puts their faith in Christ, they are united with him. They are in Christ. Yet, their life, this side of heaven, is one of becoming what they already are, one of becoming more in Christ, one of becoming more like Christ. And this is what we're looking at today, in essence, the advance of the gospel. Now, I know I said last week was the Important introductory passage to understanding what Paul's going to say. I think this week, really, is the important introductory passage to understanding the core message of Philippians. Uh, we're getting into that text, it's that central aspect of the epistle, of what it means to become more of what we already are. Look with me at verse 27. We're going to start today. Philippians 1, starting with verse 27 through verse 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him. But also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. And now here that I still have. Right before this passage. Paul had primarily been talking about what was going on in his life. What his experiences were. And what his outlook was. And, and how the gospel was a part of that. And now he turns to address the experiences at Philippi. And he doesn't hold back. I mean, he doesn't just sneak into it. I mean, he comes with fists blaring, you know, guns blazing. Look what he says. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mean, that's quite a statement. Conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, we don't get that long list of imperatives, a long list of commands, you know, or several exhortations. Just one. Just one admonition. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in truth, Paul doesn't need to say any more commands. I mean, that encompasses it all. In fact, through the next several weeks, we're going to look at the different ways that Paul understands this conducting in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Today, we're going to focus on that first aspect that he presents, which is namely a unity and steadfastness in the face of opposition. But before we get into this, I'd like to get a little nerdy, if I may. And I know that probably surprises you that someone of, of my obvious physique would get nerdy, but I may. No, I, I didn't have that written as a joke. I don't think <laughs> But I'd like to talk a little bit about the word conduct. You see, we might tend to think of that just in a general sense as a, you know, live or walk. But Paul doesn't choose the Greek word for live or for walk here. He chooses a very specific word that conduct, we may not get the full nuance of it. You see, he uses a word that has polis as its root. Now, polis is the word for city. It's where we get metropolis, Indianapolis, Minneapolis. And this word, which Paul's the only time he uses this verb, this word polis carries the connotation of acting appropriately as a citizen. That's the idea behind this. A very distinct behavior associated with belonging to a certain group. Now, of course, in Philippi, as a Roman colony with full Italian status, this would have resonance, you know, with its with its members. I mean, you took Roman citizenship quite seriously in South Galatians quite strongly. And of course, we know in Philippians three, Paul will really flesh this out when he talks about being a citizen of heaven. But already, he's using a word, this word that we have as conduct to convey that you, citizens of heaven, you have an appropriate behavior that is in accordance with who you are. That's the, the idea. It's not just a general walk or live, but a very purposeful idea. Now we do this, like we have this understanding ourselves. I think about it in terms of family. Many of you were raised and, and are being raised or are raising kids where you talk about, as being a member of this family, you don't do certain things. Or as a Smith or a Johnson or you know a Jennings, there are behaviors that are just not acceptable or are expected. I mean, my wife and I are already trying to teach our two-year-old. Which incidentally, it's like teaching a two-year-old is like teaching a fish to fly a kite. <laughs> it's, just, it's almost impossible. But we're trying to teach Avery you know, the importance of certain manners. Of certain ways of treating people with respect. Certain courtesies. You know, kashis a And that's what our family, we want to convey and we want to expect. So we have this idea, and Paul is, is, is citing that here with regards to believers in Christ. It's not practice makes perfect. It's not doing encompasses being. It's the other way. It's being enables the doing. We are becoming what we already are. And to underscore this point, Paul associates it with the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, for Paul, the gospel is it. The gospel is why he was in Macedonia and Philippi to begin with To proclaim the gospel. The gospel is why Paul suffers. The gospel is why he's in prison writing to them. The gospel is why they were partners with him. Right? The gospel, the message of the gospel of Christ is how God was pleased, pleased to call them his children. The gospel's it. You see, the gospel is a message the world does not give nor agree with. The gospel proclaims Christ proclaims Christ and Christ alone and by calling the Philippian church to act in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ he is reminding them of what Christ has done for them what Christ is doing in their midst and what Christ will ultimately do for them the gospel encompasses everything and it is their sole focus or should be. Now, what does it mean to walk in this manner, you know, this conduct? What are, what are its results? What does it entail? What is part of it? Well, we now start to get to that list that Paul presents. The first, as I said, is steadfastness and unity in the face of opposition. Read with me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. He's talking about unity. That you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now... What does this mean to stand firm in one spirit? What is Paul talking about? Some of you may have some older translations which may, may see stand firm in one mentality or one attitude. And, and I think the NIV has it exactly right here. It's stand firm in one spirit. You see, when Paul uses the word spirit, he doesn't use it as an anthropological metaphor. When Paul is talking about believers being united, it's not united in their mentality or in their attitude. It's not in the spirit of the core, so to speak. It is in the Holy Spirit. Spirit here is in the Holy Spirit. We stand firm in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's the source of our unity. It's the only reason we are gathered here right now, is it not? As Christians, we are here because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. That is what unites us. That is what we must stand firm in. Now, of course, we are not immune from human experiences. We are not immune from antipathies amongst people. We're not immune from personality clashes or that dreaded difference of style. I mean, I don't know how many... You know, conflicts and schisms have resulted because we simply don't like the style something was done in. You know, we don't like the style of how that person speaks or the style of that music or the decorations of that building. But people, that's not our unity. Our unity is not found in personalities. Our unity is not found in style similarities. Our unity is not found in a uh, pastor and staff that is dynamic. Our unity is found in one thing alone, in the Holy Spirit. That is what our source and sphere of action is. So everything we do as we stand together, should we, stand as, we should stand in spirit, as spiritual people, as praying people, as Bible-reading people, as fellowship people in the spirit. The enemy, quite united, we should be as well. Now, this unity of standing in one spirit leads naturally to a unity of action. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Our unity in spirit leads to a unity in action. The idea of contending with one man is, is you know, soldiers fighting together or a team you know, working as one that we act as one that comes from our unity but not just continuing as one man for anything no, look what Paul reminds us we're continuing as one man for the faith of the gospel everything we do as a body should be for the faith of the gospel everything not just some things, not just Sunday morning things. Everything at the body that we do should be for the faith of the gospel. Building projects for the faith of the gospel. Staffing changes for the faith of the gospel. Music styles for the faith of the gospel. Everything. For the The gospel. If you find yourself working something in the church, if you find yourself working on a lay ministry or a group or an organization that doesn't have as its central focus the faith of the gospel, you're not standing as one, as Paul desires. Now, this talk of unity is is actually pretty easy to hear, isn't it? We like talks of unity. It's easy to read. It's easy to preach. Everybody likes being on the same team. But there's a reason Paul's exhorting us to unity. There is a reason we need to stand and act as one. And this is where we start getting into the hard side. The reason we need to be one, well, it's the same reason the world understands unity as important. It's the same reason corporations spend millions of dollars and tons of seminars you know, to get the team more cohesive. It's the reason athletic groups wear uniforms. I mean, you know, there's, there's a desire for unity because there is strength in unity against the opposition. The more united an army is, the more likely they are to succeed. The importance of unity is because there is an enemy. And now we're getting to some of the more difficult teachings. Now we're getting to those sections of, of, of scripture that I get very reluctant to listen to. Opposition. Suffering. Read with me. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. It's sometimes easy when we read that we will not be frightened in any way by those who are opposing you. The truth is, we're frightened. A lot of us are frightened. The opposition can be scary. Suffering can be scary. We hear some of the stories of how people suffer and it kind of shakes us to our core. I was recently listening to a man who is fairly high in the U.S. government talking about what was happening to an underground church in China. The Chinese government had decided that this pastor of an underground church needed to be killed. Now the only way they could do that was to issue a capital charge against him that would allow them to execute him. They decided rape they decided rape would be the charge they would level against him. So they brought in all these women from this underground church and tried to convince them to falsely accuse this preacher of rape. When they refused, they tortured them. When they refused some more, they tortured them some more. And when they realized torturing wasn't working, they did something else they put these women in a room and into an adjoining room they brought their children now they couldn't see these mothers could not see these children but they could hear them they could hear them being tortured I mean I'm like that at that moment right? I mean I'm all set I'm all done how can one stand unafraid against such a brutality? It gets an enemy with such disregard for life. But I believe the Holy Spirit at those moments gives us such clarity. That what is being attacked is the gospel. That the suffering is happening because of the gospel. And when Paul talks about how we can stand without being intimidated, without being frightened, it's not merely talking about being afraid of what pain we may feel or anxiety of what may happen to our loved ones. He is talking about how we can stand unafraid because we know ultimately. Ultimately, God is victorious. That even if victory right now doesn't seem to be there, that in the end, that last day on that great getting up morning as we talked about last week, God is victorious. And the enemies of God will not go unpunished. Suffering is a result of standing for the gospel. Suffering happens because the world hates the gospel and will do anything to stop its advance. Now, we live in a country, praise God, where we practice a freedom of religion. But that does not mean we do not suffer. We may not suffer physically, but any anything that works to depress, to suppress, to stop, to frustrate your work in advancing the gospel, that's suffering. But you can stand unafraid because your suffering is a gift. Now, that's a kick in the head, isn't it? I mean, I've just gotten used to suffering being a natural result of being a Christian. But now, Paul calls suffering a gift. 29, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now most of us are pretty comfortable with our salvation being a gift. We understand it was by grace we're saved. But Paul is connecting the two. Paul is saying that it's not only been granted to you to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. How in the world is suffering a gift? I'm, I'm, ready, to, I'm ready to accept that it is a reality. But how is it a gift? verse 28 This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but you will be saved your suffering for the advance of the gospel is proof that you are on the side of the gospel your suffering for the sake of the gospel is proof that you are on the side of the gospel. If you, me, if we're not experiencing the attack of the world upon us for the sake of the gospel, we have to ask very honestly, are we working to advance the gospel? If our church doesn't suffer Our church is not attacked for the sake of the gospel. We have to ask ourselves very seriously, are we working to advance the gospel? And when we suffer, take encouragement. It is proof of your salvation. It is proof of your salvation if you are suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see, it is through suffering that the gospel has advanced. It is through our Lord's suffering on the cross that the gospel is impossible. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a teaching like this? What do we as a church do? Well, I think the first thing we do is we stand as one. We stand together as one, united in the Spirit. We pray together. We worship together. We do small group Bible studies together. We intentionally decide to grow in discipleship together. We stand as one in the Spirit. Two, we act towards the Gospel. Everything we do, we act towards the Gospel. I love this church. When I was thinking about doing Philippians, I think it's a very good epistle for us. I think we're a church that by and large gets it. We're a gospel-loving church. And we're to be a gospel-advancing church. Every decision we make as a body is for the gospel. Three... We need to be a church. The idea of a Christian standing on a hill like some knight fighting suffering alone. It may be your idea, but it's not a biblical one. Suffering occurs within a group. We are united together. Fellowship is critical. And as a church, we should expect suffering. And as you are committed, as you belong to a church, when suffering happens, don't run from that church. Don't church shop. Let us stay with this church. And let us praise God that if we suffer, if we're attacked, if the, the world of South Shore attacks South Shore Baptist, praise God, we are on the side of the gospel. We are advancing the gospel for Christ, not for our honor. Never take personal honor and suffering. You suffer for Christ. I'm reluctant to hear this teaching at times, as I said, because two things happen when I hear this teaching. A lot of times I feel guilty. A lot of times I feel guilty that I'm not conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel that breathes such suffering. I feel guilt with that. I fear fear with that. What if I was conducting myself? Would such suffering happen? Would such suffering occur? But you see where my focus is lying when I say that? On the suffering. We need a paradigm shift. Our focus is not on the suffering. It's to be on the gospel. Always on the gospel. Now, we need to be very wary of churches who are not focused on the gospel. We need to be very wary Of who don't want to talk about sin, who don't want to talk about judgment, who don't want to talk about hell. We don't have an understanding of judgment. We do not have an understanding of mercy. Mercy without justice is meaningless. If we don't have an understanding of destruction, we don't have an understanding of salvation. If we don't have an understanding of how this world works and its Lord, we don't have an understanding of our church and our Lord. Don't be afraid of those topics for in, that is the core of the gospel. If you belittle, if you belittle suffering, if you ignore suffering, you are ignoring the gospel. But the good news But the good news is perhaps best said by our Lord and his teaching on the Mount. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you. When they persecute you. When they say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice. Be glad.